You are now listening to the people of digital marketing with your host, me, Kenny Soto. This podcast is your source for marketing strategies, tactics, and most importantly, career advice from the best digital marketers in the world. From B2B to B2C, startups to Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between, I interview experts in marketing so that we can grow to become better marketers together. If you're a marketer who wants a leg up in this space, well, guess what? You're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in. Ah, yes. So now you're putting me on the spot for the article that I sent out this morning. You know, really, the point that I made was that you can either pretend it's not happening. And the, just the metaphor I gave was like being an ostrich and burying your head in the sand and just hoping that you're not going to get taken out. Or you could be a honey badger, which is a funny meme from my generation (laughs) of uh, being a little bit more aggressive with it. And what it means for me is that, look, even early career marketers, and maybe marketers will get this reference, but I found that in my career, marketers are often last to hire and first to fire, right? You don't, you don't create the product. You don't sell the product. You help sell the product. You help influence the product. But oftentimes, you're seen as a nice to have and not a need to have, especially at smaller companies where they would prefer to save their engineers and their marketing talent. You just heard a clip from our newest guest, Jacob Warwick. Jacob is the CEO of Think Warwick, an executive leadership and career growth firm, and he's on a mission to help more people love what they do. Prior to starting his own business, Jacob grew into C-suite marketing and product roles in Silicon Valley, and he was also the CEO of a multi-million dollar a year career management company. If you're interested in becoming an executive one day, specifically a VP of marketing or CMO, then you will need to create a career narrative. It's going to help you when you're having those conversations with CEOs, the people who will actually be hiring you, as well as executive recruitment firms. Now, let's dive into the actual details of what a career narrative is and how you can leverage it for your career. Hi, Jacob. How are you? Doing great, Kenny. Got some, uh, finally some good weather in northern Montana and I'm not complaining. That's awesome. It's a... raining cats and dogs here in upstate New York right now. I wanted to first say that, and I said this prior to recording, I'm really grateful for your time. I'm sure the audience will get a better understanding of who you are as a person, but I just wanted to preface that by saying that your career is very impressive. And I think that there's a lot to learn from you, not only as a marketer, but more so just as a professional. So my first question for you is how did you get into marketing? That's a great question. It wasn't on purpose. So I'm sure that uh, for many of your listeners, maybe they wanted to be in marketing. I sort of fell into it on accident. I, uh, I've always kind of been the kid that fixed the VCR and coded websites in seventh, eighth grade, did some, some of that through high school. I was the AV nerd that uh, didn't play football, but videotaped all the football games for the, for the high school and uh, got my first opportunity as a journalist while I was still in high school for the local news station in California. And uh, they wanted somebody that could speak on air and, and showcase the local sports. The school I went to had uh, championship level or state championship level football programs. So it was pretty hot in our little local scene. So I got my start as a journalist. And after high school, I didn't go to college. It was right during the economic collapse of 07, 08. 
Uh, and thinking through it, I, I looked at the ROI of, of going to a big school and how I was going to make the money and gas was five fifty a gallon and everyone was paying $8 an hour and it wasn't going to happen. So I uh, continued working as a journalist and I, I got a lucky break running into uh, one of the producers from the deadliest catch in a local Staples. Uh, if you remember Staples in an office supply store and he needed a video editor. So uh, I started editing episodes of The Deadliest Catch when I was 19 years old and still had this journalist background. And it turns out that doing some video editing and doing some reporting and journalist work helps you become a stronger storyteller, which is one of the core components of a great marketing professional. And um, poking around on Craigslist, looking for my first jobs, and then LinkedIn started taking off early in my career and stumbled into my first kind of startup growth roles from there. Can you give the audience context into what you're doing today? Yeah, so today I teach executives primarily how to find work that they love doing. And uh, this is a big fast forward from the early days. So thanks for giving me that challenge, Kenny. But uh, I used what I learned as a journalist uh, and as a marketer and a storyteller to propel my career pretty quickly, probably faster than uh, is is advisable. Um, by the time I was 24, I was a director of marketing at a Fortune 500 and went on to become a vice president of marketing by 27 uh, at startups. So not quite the same uh, status that you'd have at, at a Fortune 500, but got into some VP roles and I found that it kind of sucked. Uh, it wasn't fun. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Uh, I was a little arrogant and had uh, probably too much of an ego too. And, and some of the work that I was doing wasn't very enjoyable. It paid really well, which is a great, uh, great problem to have, but it wasn't very fulfilling and it didn't make me happy. So um, what I found that I was good at was getting jobs. And I was pretty good at talking myself into jobs that I probably had no business being in, but I wasn't happy. So something wasn't clicking. So I turned my, my career around and started coaching others on how to find work that they loved. And um, took some early uh, early year marketers under my wing and helped them find work that they liked and helped them market themselves a little bit better. Basically turned all the skills I learned in marketing around to help others market themselves. So now that's what I do. I teach executives essentially how to go to market with their careers and find work that they love while still getting paid really well in the, in the meantime. This is a vague question because I just want to see where your mind goes with it. Could you paint the picture? What is the picture of that transition between marketing tactician to marketing executive? So the picture is, uh, and this will probably resonate, if you have some early career marketing folks, you, you end up learning a lot of hard skills, a lot of email optimization and AdWords and, and you're, you're going into SEO and then you're going into content marketing and then you're learning maybe some design practices and maybe you're uh, optimizing landing pages or creating copy or you're just learning everything as fast as you can. And eventually you get pretty good at it or you just keep doing more things or you become a specialist in one particular area. Like you could be the best email marketing person in the world. Um, and while I did a lot of that, um, a lot of tactical things, but the real transition to becoming more of an executive starts to become more soft skills. It's less about the hard skills. It's less about the tactical because you're only one person. 
So you need to find a way to get more out of not just yourself, but the people around you and to support them and to help them grow in their careers as well. Otherwise, the whole business isn't going to be successful. So the two breakthroughs I had to become an executive was one, that soft skill. It's about treating others with respect, being humble, helping those up, um, supporting others, and then tying your career back to performance and revenue as much as possible. So if you can tie the work that you do, whether you're a social media manager or you're running email campaigns, but if you can tie that back to how it's impacting sales or money or typical KPIs or OKRs or any of those buzzwords you want to throw around there, if you can tie your career back to, to money and then you treat others with respect and polish up some of those soft skills, you'll start to make that transition, at least from marketing manager or senior marketing manager to director of marketing. And then the more you polish those soft skills, the closer you can start to get to now VP. And you should be in a position where you can influence three to eight people or eight to 15 people or 20 people or start working cross-functionally with other teams. When you become a VP, it becomes more important about how, to, how do you get the most, not just out of your marketing team, but out of the sales team? How about the customer success team? How are you influencing product decisions and, or the engineering team? How are you managing up to your executives? It starts to become more about everything around you and less about specifically what you know in marketing. And so there's a big transitionary period there that yes, you need to know all those tactical things, but if you only try to focus on those tactical things, like there's only so far you can push a boulder uphill. Like you just, you can't keep multiplying your time to the fact that you can start performing more than just a single person. So you have to be, the buzzword is a force multiplier, like one person to make a 10x impact on multiple people through an organization. And that's when you start to really break through that ceiling. I've experienced a similar issue recently where I've gotten really good at interviewing. I actually got that first marketing hire role at a startup where I was being groomed to eventually become head of marketing, then VP of marketing, then CMO. But what I realized is, and, and this probably a, a tr is, is related, excuse me, to any role, especially at the executive level, is being able to successfully pass an interview is a skill in and of itself that should be practiced. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily equate to all the other skills, the hard and soft skills that you mentioned that a marketing leader needs to have. What advice or recommendations would you have for someone who wants to make that jump, but may not know that all they really have is the interviews, interview skills ironed out? So the best thing that I found work for my career was surrounding by those that had done it before that have made that climb. Similar to what you're doing, you have a podcast, you're connecting with other leaders in the space, whether they're uh, either earlier in their career, maybe equal to your career or above you in your career. One of the things that I did a long time ago now, but uh, I've spent thousands and thousands of hours on LinkedIn. When I was a marketing manager, I connected with sometimes in a day, this is before LinkedIn had limitations, but I connected with a thousand directors of marketing in roles that I wanted or thought I wanted at some point in my career. So I'm this 22-year-old kid, you know, talking to mid-30s, 40-year-old director of marketing at big tech companies. I'm like, hey, can I buy you some coffee? Do you want to hang out? Like really obnoxious before, you know, LinkedIn's kind of ruined now with that, that like everyone's doing that. But it was really more about building relationships with those that had already done that. 
And then when I became a director, I said, okay, let me connect with all the VPs. And then when I was a VP, I connected with all the C-suite. And I just, I continued to have those conversations above my pay grade significantly. And a little weird fact about me, most of my friends are in their 50s. Like they're much older than me. Like I, am, uh, I have a thirst for knowledge and I always want to learn from others. You should treat everyone like there's something to learn, right? Like I, I have plenty to learn from you, Kenny, and I'm sure we can all share the wealth and that knowledge. But that's really what, what helps propel me through that, especially the imposter syndrome or not having the skills yet. And then just be willing to, to admit it too. Just say, you know, I haven't done this yet. Right. Maybe I haven't been there. I'm really good at interviewing and they've taken a chance on me. And now's my chance. My, now's my chance to shine. Right. And so there was you know, this may be funny, but uh, one of my first marketing roles, I was sitting for the first time at like, the board, like this little board table. And there's our, our, our VP of marketing, our, our VP of sales, the CEO and the co-founder in the room. And one of the board members is in the room. And I'm sitting there supposed to be doing this report on marketing. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Like I'm like sweating. And so the CEO asked a very simple question, which was like, what was the ROI of the campaign over, you know, some other thing? And like he used like four acronyms that I'd never heard of before. Like I hadn't even heard of ROI before. Like that's how bad it was. And so I I remember being so nervous. And I just asked, like, I'm gonna get that information for you, but I really have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I took off in the middle of the meeting. And I sat on the toilet and I got my phone out and I looked up all of the acronyms to understand what the hell he was talking about in the first place. And then I knew how to answer it. Right. And so then I came back as like, you know what? Thank you. I, I want to share a little bit about what our return on investment was with this. You know, we spent $22,000 last month. We had this many impressions, blah, blah, blah. And I actually like kind of saved my own ass, I guess. But what I should have done in that moment was like ask for some clarity and like, hey, help me out here, right? But that was my little my little hack of, oh no, no, they're going to see me. I, I shouldn't be here, kind of thing. What does it mean? And this doesn't need to just be with marketing; it could be with any profession. What does it mean to be recession proof in your career? Ah, yeah. So now you're putting me on the spot for the article that I sent out this morning. You know, really the point that I made was that you can either pretend it's not happening. And the, I guess the metaphor I gave was like being an ostrich and burying your head in the sand and just hoping that you're not going to get taken out. Or you could be a honey badger, which is a funny meme from my generation <laughs> of uh, being a little bit more aggressive with it. And what it means for me is that, look, even early career marketers and maybe marketers will get this reference, but I found that in my career, marketers are often last to hire and first to fire, right? You don't, you don't create the product. You don't sell the product. You help sell the product. You help influence the product. But oftentimes you're seen as a nice to have and not a need to have, especially at smaller companies where they would prefer to save their engineers and their marketing talent. And so that means that you're not necessarily as safe in your career as you'd like to be. And it's not that you don't have loyalty for the company that you're in, but you shouldn't put all of your livelihood and your power in the hands of somebody else. And that is, you could be working for Slack or a company that's really well off. And one day your boss can quit, can, can quit their job or get fired. And all of a sudden you don't have any air cover. Now all the power that you put in someone that you trust is up to somebody else. And somebody else comes in and says, yeah, I don't need someone like Kenny on my team. Bye. And you're gone. Well, 
that happens, but you still got a mortgage to pay, or you got rent to make, or you got a car payment, or you got a cell phone bill, or you got insurance, or you got student loan debt, or you got, you know, your life doesn't stop because somebody above you moved. And so you could be the most loyal person in the world. You could be doing a kick-ass job. You could be overperforming and even giving your heart and soul. Like you don't even do anything else. You don't have friends. You don't have a relationship. You're 16 hours a day, early career marketer, just totally kicking ass. And the, the rug can get swept out from under you. That can happen during a great economy. Now in a recession, that happens significantly more often. And I, I had the, the realization because like I came out of high school, didn't have a college degree. And it was right in the recession. Great mid-level managers, executive managers, like marketers, they got fired in the recession. I took their job as a kid for $12 an hour because I didn't know any better. And that's why I had an accelerated learning path. These folks who were making 100, 150, 200 grand a year, like they lost their jobs and they were replacing them with folks like me. So it was an opportunity for me and tough for them. And that can happen to any of us at any time. So the moral of the story is, long-winded, thank you, is keep the door open. Keep opportunities coming in. You're not disloyal by having a company reach out to you and be like, Kenny, I'd really like to, to interview you for this. Take it. Take the interview. You could love your job. You could be one week into a job that you love. Take that interview. See what they say. Be honest. Yeah, I just took a job. I'm not really looking to leave. But you never know what you're going to learn. Just keep doors open. Keep planting. I call them planting seeds. Like tell other companies you may be interested. Do those things. Just because an opportunity is open for you doesn't mean you need to walk through it. So it doesn't mean you need to bail on the company because they want to hire you. You can say no. Not timing's not right, but thank you. And I love, let's build a relationship. Or maybe, and this is one of the ways I started my entrepreneurial career, was that maybe somebody wants to hire you and the timing's wrong. So they don't hire you full time. They hire you as a contractor. You start consulting. You start doing multiple work. Now you have, maybe it's just 10 hours a week, but you have money coming from here. So if this job goes away, you have a little bit of money and you can get paid while you look. And all these little things, you have multiple revenue streams and these multiple opportunities to make money start to come in. And that really recession proofs your career. Like right now I own my own business because it's in my hands. I trust myself more than I trust the manager more than I trust another executive that I've worked with. And while I'm not one of those, like I have a bunch of real estate investments or I have money coming from the stock market or I invested in crypto. Like I don't have any stock. I don't have any of that, but I can make money through freelance writing or being a marketing consultant or direct career consulting or getting a job or getting a small contract or just having all this confidence to be able to make sure that you're well taken care of is how you recession proof your career. Now, this is a perfect segue into a career narrative, right? So let's say the goal is obviously to become as recession proof as a possible, even during a great economic upswing. Now, a career narrative can help in that endeavor. Can you tell the audience, one, what a career narrative is and two, why is it important to have that clearly defined? So your career narrative is really your why, right? It's, it's why you do what you do. It's, it's the story that you tell others of why they should believe in you, why they should be confident in you. And your narrative is also how 
you paint the picture for others and what perception you want to leave behind with them. So if I want you to feel like I'm the world's best marketer, maybe I will choose to share more marketing related stories. If I want you to feel like I'm a career consultant, I will handpick the pieces of story that I want to tell you that point in the direction of a career consultant. So the little pieces that I shared with you about running to the bathroom and looking up SEO and KPIs and ROI and all those things, I don't normally pull that piece of my story out for everyone I speak to. So one way I like to equate this for my clients is that pretend you're Katniss, right? Katniss Everdeen, right? So she's got a quiver and she's got a quiver full of arrows and you choose the arrows that you want to pull out. This is your narrative. So I'm talking to somebody that knows a lot about marketing. I'm going to start pulling out more marketing-related arrows. And those are, the, those are the pieces of the story that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about that time I grew an email list 40%. I'm going to, right? I'm going to talk about this time that marketing was attributing 4 million ARR to the whole company over the course of a couple of years. I may pull those pieces out. If I'm talking to an executive, I may pull the arrow out where I was the CEO of Discover Podium and had 20 employees. And I led 20 employees through the COVID pandemic. And I might talk a little bit about the pressures and what it was like to be an executive and have people looking up to you through hard times because I can build a stronger connection with that person. So your narrative changes depending on who you're talking to. In sales, they would call this mirroring or something like mirroring where that's more of a tone match. Like if you're kind of quiet and conservative, I might slow down a little bit, articulate more. If you're hyped up and excited, I might pick it up and build the tone up. It's similar to that, but it's also with the stories that you choose to tell. If you're speaking with a highly technical founder, they may really want you to get into the weeds and get into the details and the numbers and the metrics and how you did something. If you're talking to a sales leader that's fast-paced and vague and more broad, they might be more excited by the energy and choosing stories that are funny or more anecdotal. So that's how you craft a career narrative and you have different pieces that you prepare. And one thing I recommend is just write out a handful of them on some bullets. It's like funny things that happened or pieces of a story or little things that you can choose to pull out and just have them prepared. You may not need them for a few years. You'll need them in different contexts. So hopefully that defines it. I think there was a second part of your question. I might've missed that. Why is it important to have it clearly defined? So it's really important to be able to highlight your past in a way that paints the future that you want. And so this is really tricky. So who you've been isn't necessarily where you're going. And one of the traps that we fall into in our career, especially for me, I never wanted to be in marketing. And here I am a VP of marketing. I got chief growth officer roles. Like I did it, right? I never actually wanted to do that. And that's because the stories that I told along the way were in the ways that I thought about. I thought of my, about myself in a marketing vein, and I thought about myself as only being a marketer, and I thought about myself as growing into CMO and staying within that track. And you'll see that if you look on LinkedIn, you'll see that through career progressions, maybe from some of your favorite marketers, you know, marketing coordinator, or intern, um, associate, marketing manager, senior marketing manager, senior marketing manager, again, director of marketing. Like it's a very linear path. But what happens if you never wanted to be in marketing? What happens if you wanted to save puppies from the past? What happens if you wanted to start your own business in sales? 
or something completely unrelated. Like your story suddenly doesn't make sense. Like people can't logically make that connection. Like if I'm looking at your background, Kenny, I'm like, oh, cool. I will keep Kenny in mind for marketing things. But you've never told me that, you know, actually I'm more interested in, you know, not being in tech. I'd actually like to do something more with my hands. Maybe you want to learn something else. So your narrative is important because you can drip the pieces of where you're going into it. And what that does is it invites other people to help build that future with you. And so this is really tricky because I could say, you know, Kenny, I'm building a media company and I'm planting a seed with you. It's like Jacob is now connected with media. And if you hear about that at another point and I keep our relationship strong, and you bring me opportunities or you at least think about things or you talk to other people about me or you, I'm talking to your audience about me, now they might say like, oh, Jacob's associated with media. And I can start to move my career over in a new direction. I've never owned a media company. I don't have a media company. Like I, I do a newsletter basically, right? But if I say my vision is media, then people can start to make stronger recommendations and push my career in that direction. So your narrative has a lot of power. What you choose to tell people and trust with other people and how you want that information to spread is important. Tying into career narrative and making it so that there's some actionable advice. There are three questions that I have planned as far as how to leverage the career narrative once you have some idea of how to define it. You mentioned your newsletter. And having a newsletter is still tried and true, great tactic to use, whether you're growing a business for yourself or for someone else. How do you approach the growth of your newsletter? Yeah, that's a, it's a loaded question because uh, I will not say what everyone else says in that I don't approach the growth of it. I actually don't care so much about the growth of it. Um, I have decent growth on it. Um, I do say that, you know, the content is king, right? But I haven't, I haven't done a whole lot for growth other than manually telling a couple people about it. Uh, what, I, what I actually do is take the conversations that I have with clients and use that to inform the content that I write because I know more people are going to like it. And then I try to write in a way that is controversial and not fluffy and take it very, very seriously. I have a very kind of structured content regimen that I follow and the consistency of it. But I previously bootstrapped a million dollar business without a newsletter. And we, we built it off of basically messaging people on LinkedIn, having conversations, using LinkedIn recruiter to understand who was looking for jobs. and. While it is tried and true, like we didn't pay for advertising, we didn't do all of the traditional marketing things, which is essentially blasphemy as some, with somebody that is, has a fairly strong marketing background that we didn't even do marketing for a company. But um, in terms of approaching the growth, I do want to grow the newsletter. A couple of things I'm working on right now is uh, migrating to a stronger website that's gonna give me a little bit more creative control. And I'm starting to put some of the pillars of SEO that I've had in place so that I can increase some organic without really bastardizing the message, right? You don't want to have 6,000 words where everything is, what is career narrative? 
Why is career narrative important? Oh, you have a backlink from Wikipedia? You're the best page on the subject, right? It's not going to be watered down like that, but I'm considering how some of that SEO stuff works. But the most important way of growth for me is giving back to others, providing your time, always, always giving more than you take. And ultimately, it's through partnerships that it really grows. So if you write something great and it, it resonates with Kenny and your audience, hey, I might pick up two or three subscribers from, from talking on your podcast. And hopefully some folks learn from that. But I'm not going to, if I got no followers, even if I lost followers, I said, how dare you talk to Kenny, right? It's still worth it because you're putting yourself out there and you're learning. So I approach more of the growth from a partnership level, doing podcasts, speaking to communities, engaging in communities versus listing or advertising or, or anything like that. And just to confirm, this is the same approach you have for growing your LinkedIn audience in general too, correct? Yeah, I haven't been concerned with my LinkedIn audience in a long time. Uh, I think I probably close to about 32,000 or so followers. Um, I've, I, I think most of that is augmented just from connecting with people, right? Um, I had 45,000 connections back in like 2014. And then LinkedIn put a connection cap on and I manually had to delete 15,000 people to keep my profile. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned with LinkedIn follower growth either, though maybe I should be. Some, some of the other career coaches and stuff, they totally kill it. Uh, I don't particularly like the approach to how they share content in a lot of ways. I know there's, there are hacks for the algorithm uh, and it's usually say something with a strong opinion that's not well-researched and see what happens because people get really mad uh, and it tends to do well. Um, and then I also think I found that I unfollowed probably 25,000 connections that I had because I was trying to trim down the news feed. And I think that LinkedIn punishes me for the algorithm. and doesn't share my stuff quite as much, but I could also, you know, just be a little hurt. <laughs> When it comes to your writing, what is your approach to pitching to publications? I haven't pitched to a publication actually in probably 10 years. I'm, I'm trying to think about it. I got very, very fortunate. Uh, I had a really good break um, in order to get into those publications. And I was working at a tech startup, the same one where I had to Google what my job was. And I was part of a 50-person layoff, um, which again, don't put your uh, put all your eggs in one basket. And I had already done a lot of LinkedIn work and made a lot of connections. And I made a connection with a marketing consultant. His name is Brian Honigman, and he's out of New York, or I think he's out of Philadelphia now. Previous you know guest. Who Brian is. Oh, yeah. Brian. Okay, so Brian yeah. used to be my boss. Everything I learned from uh, about writing is from Brian, and um, I got very fortunate in that the day that the company announced the layoff, I got an in-mail message from Brian looking for a copywriter to join the team that knows about marketing. And I had been a marketing manager at the time and I had no freaking idea what I was doing. Don't tell Brian that, but I had no idea what I was doing. And he said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write a blog post a day, a day, like 1500 words, thousand words, 2000 words. And you're going to help me and we're going to work together and we're going to get stuff published. And so I did some of the, I did a lot of the heavy research work and, and some ghostwriting for Brian. And he 
basically took my first article. I spent like 12, 13 hours on it. Just really like I was in tears. It was so freaking hard. And he like redlined it all. I was like, this is bad. This is bad. You should do this. Like, not that mean. He's not mean at all. But he basically like I took it that way. I took it way more intense. And um, he basically polished it up and and then he submitted it and got it published in the New York Times, like right away. Like, cause he has all the connections. Like Brian is the one you want to talk to about pitching publications. But he taught me how to write. He said, look, here's how you research. Here's how, you know, spend this much time researching. Here's the ideas. Here's how we do this. And he just honestly has changed the course of my career. Just having that one good break like that. And um, some of the, he let me write some articles for myself. They got syndicated into Entrepreneur and that started the, the chain. Once you have the chain of events and a strong uh, personal brand, it helps sell that story a little bit later. Two more questions. Does a potential marketing leader really need to focus on their personal brand or could they actually achieve the role of CMO without one? There's an easy answer here, which is yes. They absolutely do need to work on their personal brand one way or the other and or their personal network. The delineation that I have is that if you want to be a CMO in tech, you absolutely need to have a personal brand that is going to carry you through your career because you're looking for a job every time you get one. Like you'll, you'll see the best CMOs uh, only are at a company for 18 months in tech. So that's pretty exhausting for what it's worth. They need to have a great brand to make sure that they're not out looking for work all the time. Um, they are naturally looking for work. They've built the habits to protect themselves. That's why they've made it that far in their career. So that personal brand, and, and more importantly, that can be developed not just with what you put on your LinkedIn, but with how you treat other people. If you treat other people with respect and you take care of them and get my, the golden rule, give more value than you expect to re- receive in return, people will carry that with them through their career. Now, the caveat on where you don't necessarily need it, I work with a lot of clients that have never even used LinkedIn, a lot of executives that don't need it. There are some career paths and I don't know how many of your audience would even be on this path, but you know we live in a pretty small tech bubble. Like if you're on LinkedIn, like they have a lot of users and there's a lot of folks there, but we are still stuck in this kind of echo chamber of just tech or just small startups or in LinkedIn perpetuates information in the circle that you're in. So if you're a healthcare executive, like you have a different approach. It's not often through LinkedIn, at least I can't see it and you probably can't see it. They may be doing more events and more networking and more speaking in other contexts. So you do need a personal brand regardless of whether you're online or off or whatever the medium is. But we have to recognize also that we live in a very small bubble and that's all we see. So there is no like one size fits all answer there. You can, you can become a CMO by being a janitor at a company first. I know a guy who started as a lineman working at an energy company, climbing the lines and like building the line and like, well, whatever they do, right? The actual physical labor part, been at the company for 25 years and has been the CEO for the last five. Entire career, 25 years, working up from a lineman to the CEO. And so personal brand, yeah. Integrity in that industry, in that space, no one knows him as anything less than full of integrity and a great person, right? Some paths are untraditional. What we see on LinkedIn is not necessarily reality. There's a clip if I've heard one. My last question for you is hypothetical. 
if you had access to a time machine and can go back into the past about 10 years, knowing everything you know right now, how would you accelerate the speed of your career? I'd actually want to slow it down, <laughs> take a little bit more time and be in roles a little bit longer. But the number one thing I learned, it, it was about six years ago, but one of the biggest weaknesses I had was not being assertive enough and not creating my own boundaries and being smart with those. Uh, I took, I had to take a personality assessment for my very first VP of marketing role. And the executive recruiter said, you scored well in everything. It's actually quite cool. Like you're really well-rounded, but you're not very assertive. And we don't like having like executives that aren't assertive. And what I realized was, and if I could go back 10 years and read a book, it would be Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Uh, and you can Google that one right there. It's a good one. I'd, I've read maybe 50 business books. I'm not one of those like crazy business book type persons, but there's only two books of like anything that I would ever recommend. And it's Radical Candor by Kim Scott and Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is phenomenal. But Kim Scott has a model of kind of four quadrants that you can fit in. Um, one of which is manipulatively insincere. So those are the people that are kind of stabbing you in the back, but smiling at your face. And that you'll, you'll probably recognize that if you've spent any amount of time in any culture. But then there's those that are typically really well-performing, um, but they're obnoxiously aggressive. They're kind of like overly assertive. This is usually the bro culture. They're like kind of assholes and really obnoxious, but they're also the bosses and created the company. So you kind of have to bow down to it. And that culture is typically rewarded more than the category I fell in, which is ruinously empathetic. Like I care so much about how you feel that I'm not going to tell you when you're doing something wrong because I don't want to hurt your feelings. Right. So I don't want to say like, Hey, Kenny, you could have done this podcast a little bit better. Right. I don't want to say that. That's like, I care about your feelings. So I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in doing so I hurt your growth. Right. But if I say like, your podcast could have been better. Like then you're obnoxiously aggressive. And so what Kim Scott says is you should be kind of both. And the sweet spot is called being radical candor. And that is you want to be direct and honest with people because you care about them. And so it's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's like, Kenny, I really appreciate you know the work that you're doing. When you, you know, make rough transition, you're not doing this by the way, but when you make rough transition, it makes your podcast come off a little amateurish and I think you're better than that. And you're like, wow, that's that's some feedback I can actually do something with, right? It's not, dude, that sucked. Like that's aggressive and it, there's nothing constructive about it. So if I could go back 10 years, I would read that book that wasn't out yet, but it'd be helpful. That's perfect. If anyone wanted to say hello online, where can they find you? On LinkedIn <laughs> or the website at thinkwarwick.com. I'm usually pretty easy to reach. I respond to everything that I get unless it's clearly spam. So that's fair. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Jacob, for your time today. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast with your host, Kenny Soto. And if you have the time, rate us on Apple and Spotify. That way we can get more people like you to listen. And as always, I hope you have a great week. Bye. Before you go, I have one more thing to share with you. We have another guest coming up next week for episode 92, who goes by the name Leandre Leroux, and he's from Toronto, Canada. 
If you've been interested in leveling up your writing or also creating a book that will help you stand out as a marketer, then definitely subscribe to this podcast because that's what we'll be talking about in the next episode. Hey, thanks again for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to submit a rating and leave a review on your podcasting app. Reviews like this help to grow this podcast and get it to more people like yourself, people who want to grow in their marketing careers. If you want to say hello, you can find me on any social media platform by simply searching Kenny Soto. I look forward to hearing from you soon. And as always, let's keep growing together.